0: Life is basically a series of decisions, and the quality of your life is directly proportional to the quality of those decisions. Whether you're in a startup, you're doing a jujitsu match, you're in a relationship with someone, everything you do is dictated by the quality of your micro and macro decisions. And there's no better person to learn the secrets of good decision-making from than any Duke who was in a PhD program at Penn for psychology and dropped out to become a poker player, a professional poker player, and made $4 million doing so, and then returned to her studies to research the science of decision-making. So today I'm going to teach you guys how to think in bets. Thinking in bets is going to transform the way you make decisions because it's going to make explicit the nature of those decisions. Bets are defined by choice, probability, risk, and your beliefs. And when you think about decisions as bets, you're less black and white, you're more nuanced, you're more explicit about uncertainty, and you see the world in a much clearer and more nuanced way. And as a result, you make much higher quality decisions. This stuff is hard, and it doesn't come naturally to many or most of us. Um, So have you ever met someone with a lot of experience who still makes terrible decisions? Like, let's say you have a coworker who makes rookie mistakes after decades in the field, or you have an uncle who struggles with relationships after years of exposure to the vagaries of human nature. It's hard to unsee your cognitive biases, separate the signal from the noise, and learn how to make good decisions, but it's possible. And not only is it possible, it's essential. So we're going to do two episodes on this topic, and we're going to use Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets, as the basis for these two episodes. And her other books are excellent as well, uh, How to Decide, and her recent book, Quit, um, which I haven't read yet, but we might cover it at some point as well. So we're going to talk about six different ways to improve your decision making based on the life lessons of Annie Duke, in the trenches as a poker player and as an academic psychologist. And this week, the three lessons we're gonna cover include understanding how your mind deceives you and why, learning to think in shades of gray and learning how to learn from experience. And each of these is counterintuitive, extremely transformative of your approach to making decisions and will make a measurable impact on the quality of your life quality of your startup, quality of whatever you're building or trying to achieve by improving the quality of your decisions. So let's jump right in and start talking about how and why your mind deceives you. So the first, the first thing you have to understand is your brain is not built for objectivity. Picture yourself on the savanna in 3000 BC. You're foraging for some berries and you hear a rustling in the tall grass. You're in lion country and you have, you know, two different ways you could react. One way is to stop and deliberate and analyze the behavior of lions and like their migration patterns and the likelihood and probability of it being a lion versus something else or you can jump up and get ready immediately to fight or flee. Now, you can probably tell that the person who jumps up and responds immediately is more likely to pass on their genes and more likely to survive. Historically, the cost of making a type 1 error, which is a false positive, is much um, much h- lower than making a type two error, which is a false negative. Well, actually a false positive is is, is, is lower risk because you think something is there, but it's not. Um, basically what I'm trying to say here is like, if you think there's no lion and there's a lion, you're gonna die. Your brain is made for speed and you're going to commit more, um, more type two errors and type one errors because type one errors are much more costly so a way to think about this is your brain is made for efficiency it's it's be quick or be dead and daniel kahneman and amos tversky outline this reflexive dynamic in dividing the brain up into system one and system two so system one is your reflexive uh immediate reactive mind where you make these quick decisions where the priority is efficiency and system 2 is your deliberative mind where you detach and consider things more deeply and analytically and it's it's effortful it's it's it requires like a degree of detachment it requires time it requires an incentive to do that cognitive work and a cue that it's time to use your deliberative mind so Have you ever seen like a visual illusion? Like, have you seen that illusion called the, let's say, I believe Muller-Lyer illusion, where there's these lines and they look like they're different lengths, but they're actually the same. Even if you know they're the same length, um, they still look different. It's really hard to unsee an illusion, whether it's visual or cognitive. So just because you know you are being irrational doesn't mean you can unsee the illusion. And I experienced this recently while playing Roulette, which is a ridiculously pointless game. Um, In Roulette, there's really no way to beat the house. Like, the best you can do is, like, bet on red or bet on black. And you have a a less than 50% chance of winning in in either case. Because I believe there's, like, a couple of um, tiles on the wheel that are, like, neither red nor black, I think. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's true. Either that or there's 50-50. But I, either way, like you're not going to beat the house of this game. So it's kind of a ridiculous game. But in playing roulette, I kept betting on red, and I won, and I won again. And in my head, like I had this gut reaction of, oh, I should, I should, um, I should vote on black now. Because it felt to me like the probability of winning again on red was extremely low. When in reality it's like the probability had not changed at all. So this is an example of how like I know this is irrational, but I have this gut reaction, you know, of like, oh I'm on a hot streak, I, I feel that it's more likely to end than not. Um so how do you how do you correct for this in that case? I think there's two things. Like you have to you have to have a ruler. For example, let's take this this illusion with the lines, right? You have to have a ruler and you have to know when to pull it out and measure things. So a lot of decision making is understanding how your mind distorts reality and when you need to pull your ruler out and measure things instead of just like going off of your intuition. The other side of it, of course, is like updating your beliefs and and improving your intuitions, which we'll talk about in the third takeaway, which is about how to learn from experience. So why poker? Why, why is poker a good venue to learn about decision science? In poker, you're making decisions constantly. There's uncertainty. There's high stakes. You're literally betting a house in in tournaments. And you need to learn from a jumbled mass of decisions after the fact. And poker also is much more like life than Other games like chess in that there's hidden information there's deception there's uncertainty you can do everything right in poker and still lose and you can do everything wrong and win and life has that quality where in the aggregate a great poker player will win more than a bad poker player but there's always like a a puncher's chance if that makes sense so john von neumann spoke to this he was one of the fathers of game theory along with many other things the h-bomb computing um the strategy of mutually assured destruction Um, but in terms of game theory he had this this great quote which is chess is not a game it's a well-defined form of computation you may not be able to work out the answers but in theory there must be a solution a right procedure in any position real life is not like that at all Real life consists of bluff, bluffing, little tactics of deception, of asking yourself what is the other man going to think I mean to do. And that's what games are all about in my theory. So the first first thing to understand here is we like to be certain about things. We don't like to feel uncertain. And this speaks to the second point, which is becoming a more nuanced thinker and thinking in shades of gray. If we define right and wrong as these black and white things, you're either 100% right or you're 0% right. We get defensive and we obscure the reality of the situation. We we start to engage in motivated reasoning where we diminish um, evidence that counters our beliefs. Whereas if we're if we're more nuanced, more um probabilistic, we can say, okay, you know, here here's the um here's the real nature of the situation, right? So let me, let me give you an example. Let's say you're a startup founder and you're considering taking external funding. You're considering raising your series A. Should you do that or should you not do that? What's going to yield the greatest return for your startup? You could say that this is a yes or no question with a right or wrong answer, but really there's a range of possible outcomes, right? You try to raise your series A and you have a down round. What's the probability of that outcome? You try to raise your series A and you get a great valuation. You have a good investor who advises you well. Um, You try to raise and you get raked over the coals and you, you get a bad deal. You get poor liquidation preference. You get, you know, um, your stock massively diluted. You have an investor that you're misaligned with. Each of these are possible outcomes, and and there's some probability of each of these things happening. <clears throat> when you reframe the situation as right versus from right versus wrong, sim- simplistically like that, to there's this range of possible alternatives, and each of them has a certain probability of occurring and you do your best to gauge these probabilities, preferably by assessing the base rate likelihood of these probabilities, and then adjusting in small increments, you're, you're going, going to diffuse that tendency to be defensive and try to be right. And you're gonna have more of a descriptive, exploratory eye towards understanding the situation. <clears throat> Similarly, you you apply the same type of nuance to learning from experience, which we'll talk about a little more in a sec, but with learning from experience, the equivalent is how much of an outcome should be ascribed to luck versus skill. So as an example, let's say I go out and I make a terrible choice and I drive drunk and I survive driving drunk, get home alive didn't hurt anybody, that outcome doesn't make that a good decision, right? Now, why is that? Because there's a high degree of luck involved in me not hitting people or getting into an accident and hurting myself. Many decisions we make involve a degree of luck and a degree of skill. And teasing apart the contribution of luck and contribution of skill in a nuanced in a gradual way, uh, is really crucial to being able to learn effectively from it, from um, our experiences. And this is a big part of why people don't learn from their experiences. So, let me ask you: like, what are some of the best decisions you've ever made? Just think, take a second to like think about those decisions. If I were going to guess, I would guess that every single decision that you thought of was a decision that had a positive outcome. Which goes to show how tightly we couple decision quality with re- with the quality of outcomes. Annie Duke calls this resulting. And resulting is like, it's a recipe for learning the wrong lessons from your experiences. And in poker, this is especially acute because for with each poker hand, there is a high percentage move that you should make. You can go through and play everything, you can make every decision right and still lose the game. And life is a lot like that. And especially, you know, in the world of startups and investing, things are very much like that, right? Where given the information you had at any given point, you can make the optimal decisions and still be wrong. And on the flip side, you can make terrible decisions and be right. And you you tell me if you guys have encountered this in in your various fields of um, study or fields of experience, have you ever met someone who has had, let's say, one lucky outcome and therefore believes that the way they attained that is perfectly transferable, perfectly generalizable, and the exact right way of doing things? Do you know a person like this? Th- that, that person, that's what it looks like to look at results purely and judge your decision quality based on them. They think that in a cargo cultish way, Um. because they did these things, this outcome was evoked. You, you see this as well with, um, well, first of all, like cargo cults. What, what are these cargo cults? Well, I... Maybe I, I might get this sl- slightly wrong, so if I do, please contact us and let me know. But my impression is the, um, the trope of cargo cults comes from Margaret Mead, who in an anthropological study was investigating this tribe that would <clears throat> put together the trappings of like airfields and air traffic control with the belief that if they if they created structures that look like that, cargo would drop from the sky. Because in World War II, they saw um, military airmen, you know, summoning cargo this way, and they didn't draw the connection between what was actually happening. They 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 lost the thread of causality. They didn't understand the technology. All they understood was if I ape this behavior, this will happen because I did this and this result occurred or they did this and this result occurred. And the second part that I mentioned there where it's like looking at what other people do is something really important to consider in all of this as well is resulting, isn't just something that happens when you assess your own decisions. Resulting also happens when you assess other people's decisions, right? Steve Jobs was successful. Therefore I need to not wear deodorant park in handicapped spaces, wear a black turtleneck, because these things resulted in this outcome. Now, <clears throat> in, in reality, he might have succeeded despite those things, not because of them. Right. Another great example of this is like open office floor plans. There's an increasing amount of evidence that open office floor plans are not good for productivity, for collaboration, for people's sense of place, in the office and yet companies emulate these open office floor plans that you see at, at big tech companies because they believe that by doing this we're going to be a more innovative culture they've, they've taken the result of innovation and you know assess certain decisions on the road to that result as being good decisions even though they might have nothing to do with it or they might be counterproductive, in fact. Um, And if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll see that, you know, iPhone, the iPhone, Apple's Project Purple, their office was not, like, very cool. It was a pretty, like, you know, old-school office building. Everyone had their own offices. Um, They didn't have an open-office floor plan by any means. Um, But what they did have that was much more important is and interdisciplinary culture. They had a trading zone where people of different disciplines were able to come together and exchange ideas. They had a a ruthlessly high standard of excellence as far as like user experience. They would dog food their tools constantly, obsessively. They had great creative direction. And yeah, so I think it's just important to, it's very important to try to learn from other people's experience because it doesn't cost you anything. When you're learning from your own experience, you 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 learn more deeply in a way because you have emotional leverage. You, you build emotional scars by actually like going through the pain and putting some money in yourself. That's part of why thinking in bets is so effective because when you put a, a dollar price on something, it clarifies things immediately. Like for example, you know, if, if I were at, at, at a party and I was just like, you know i said something like male pattern baldness is heritable from your you know father's side or something and i was really sure about this if someone's like hey you want to bet immediately i'm like oh how sure am i where did i get this information um is it a reliable source you know you go from being like i am sure to how sure am i so there's something to be said for having skin in the game and learning from your own experiences, but if you're able to learn effectively from other people's experiences, it's free. You just have to be really careful to tease apart the influence of skill and luck. And, you know, we also have biases along these lines, right? Like some people are very prone to saying that someone's success is purely luck or largely luck, right? And you see this more on the political left where it's like, well, billionaires, you know, uh, Bill Gates' mom helped him get the deal at IBM, or Jeff Bezos' family gave him 250k. You know, notwithstanding the fact that Microsoft was already a dominant player when that deal happened, or the fact that Jeff Bezos was a senior person at a financial firm and could easily get 250k from his contacts in in that world, um, and also ignoring every other successful entrepreneur who or many other successful entrepreneurs, actually most, who don't come from a privileged background at all. And on the flip side, you know, the right-wing bias is to believe that luck is immaterial and that everything comes down to your individual skill and how you respond to things. I think generally your life is best if you're accurate about things. You, you, You have to try to be high high resolution and tease apart the influence of luck and the influence of skill and try not to be tendentious and like, you know, mollify your emotions, right? Like the reason why some people want to ascribe everything to luck is to explain their own failures, right? And the reason why some people want to attribute everything to skill is to not have to intervene to help those who've really drawn a, a bad hand right? Um, I think there's more to it than that, right? On on the flip side, you could say that people who ascribe everything to luck want to be compassionate to those who are unsuccessful, and people who ascribe everything to skill want to emphasize human autonomy and your ability to, like, improve your own circumstances. But in all cases, the, the best thing you can do is be accurate. So, So something to understand about the importance of being high resolution about right and wrong, luck and skill, is that we're deeply loss averse. This is like one of the fundamental biases of human psychology is loss aversion. And and roughly it's a two to one ratio. So being wrong hurts us about twice as more as being right feels good to us for that reason, redefining wrong and right and being more probabilistic and nuanced and understanding that there is no, we are frequently unable to find the optimal answer to a decision. There are better answers, there are worse answers and there's a, there's a values driven component to this. What is the ideal job, right? I mean, is there a right answer to that? I mean, some jobs give you flexibility, some give you more money, some give you more prestige. Generally, I think prestige is the wrong thing to chase. But again, it depends on your, your, your uh, values and, and your um, orientation, right? I mean, um, so the po- point being is, don't be so black and white. Don't think in terms of right and wrong. Think in terms of shades of gray. Think in terms of probability, so learning from experience. So um, this, this is the third point is like learning how to learn from experience. We've talked a little bit about this, but in order to understand the challenges of learning from experience, you have to, you have to understand that our beliefs drive the bets we make and the decisions we make. And the accuracy of our beliefs and our ability to update them is a key determinant of success. So our default is to believe things. The, the way we tend to form beliefs is we hear something, we believe it, and then sometimes in the future we question and unseat or redefine those beliefs. And there's research by a Harvard psychologist Daniel Gilbert that demonstrates and, and exemplifies this. Um, And you you also see this tendency for motivated reasoning, which we talked about a little bit earlier, but it's basically like we seek to reinforce existing beliefs and avoid disconfirming evidence. We don't really challenge our beliefs. There there were two uh, psychologists, Hastorf and Cantrell at Princeton and Dartmouth, who did some research after a famous football game in 1951 between those two schools. And the game was a really rough, uh, violent game with like a lot of fouls. It was Bill Kazmaier's last game. And when they surveyed students afterwards, the Princeton students believed that the Dartmouth students had fouled three times more than them. And the Dartmouth students believed that the two teams had fouled roughly evenly. So they saw the same game, but there was a huge discrepancy in each team's beliefs about what happened. There was, and this research paper was called They Saw a Game. Now, fast forward to more recent times, in the last two decades, I forget the exact date of this study. It might have been 2011 or something like that. But it was called They Saw a Protest by some Stanford professors. And they show the same protest to two groups of people with opposing beliefs And literally, their interpretation of the protest was completely different. One emphasized, you know, principled people standing up for their beliefs. The other emphasized violent criminals disrupting the peace and just generally damaging and deranging a public space. So you can tell that this is a very deep-seated tendency. It's really hard to just have experiences and, and analyze them accurately and learn from them. We, we're very tendentious. We, we tend to resist updating our beliefs. There's additional research that shows that the smarter you are, the better you are at rationalizing false beliefs. And you kind of see this where the pathologies harbored by intelligent people are far more insane and far worse at the extremes than the pathologies harbored by simpler people right? Like some of the worst horrors of the 20th century could only have been imagined by highly intelligent people who went way down a rabbit hole with crazy far-fetched beliefs and created fantastical rationales, mazes of rationale um, that were impossible to traverse to protect their insane ideas, right? Like Pol Pot, the architect of the Cambodian genocide Went to the Sorbonne and studied there. Right, it's it's folks like that that um, really have the intellectual horsepower to dream up something so absurdly ridiculous and and vicious. That's not like I'm not against intelligent people, but I think intelligent people have a responsibility to try to think more clearly and be good stewards of their minds, knowing that. They have the horsepower to, you know, stay ahead of themselves in this way and kind of trick themselves into sophisticated, motivated reasoning. Now, blind spot bias is this bias where it's really easy to see cognitive distortions in other people. It's much harder to see it, see them in yourself. And it's even worse, like the more intelligent you are. So what what do we do about all this? Well, first thing you can do is what we said before, which is express your beliefs as a percentage. Be probabilistic and take a measured approach. Get comfortable with uncertainty and redefine right and wrong. And you're more likely to hold your beliefs loosely rather than tightly. And and ask yourself, like, where did I get this information from? You know, how, how do I know this? How reliable is this? What is the percentage chance that this belief is true? As soon as you ask these questions, things get a lot clearer. Um, another, Another thing is just like going through and taking the time to look back on decisions you've made and understand the information you had at each point. So let's say you experience something you... You know, have a jujitsu match and you're rewatching it and you make a decision to use a certain choke. You make a decision to pass the guard a certain way or pin pin your opponent a certain way or escape a certain way. At each point, ask yourself, like, what did I know at the time? And out of what I knew, what were the possible decisions I could have made? What are the possible choices I could have made? What were the possible outcomes that could have happened? And what what would the probabilities have been to the best of my ability, right? And do that for each key decision in the experience you're trying to learn from. By going through and, and looking at it that way, you're, you're gonna understand truly like, if you were to rerun this scenario a thousand times, what would the best approach be based on the information you had at each point? That's the question. The question isn't, you know, this one result and this one approach, right? The question is, if I use this approach again in a probabilistic game a thousand times, what would be the ideal approach? And let's go back to the drunk driving example, right? If I drive sober a thousand times versus if I drive drunk a thousand times, there's a huge discrepancy in the expected values I can, I can derive from those two things, right? Right. Expected value is like, you know, the value of an outcome multiplied by the probability of it, right? So let's just use the arbitrary scoring system and let's say that, like, dying is negative a thousand, right? So negative a thousand times the probability of dying. So if you drive drunk, your probability of dying is much higher your probability of grievous injury is much higher, and therefore your expected value is much worse over a, a long set of trials. So this this is kind of the uh, the process you use to tease apart the influence of luck and skill and learn effectively from your experiences. And next week, we're going to talk about three more techniques from Annie Duke's book. One of them is... One of them is about cultivating a group of peers who are honest with you and, and using them to help you question your beliefs and update your beliefs and, and help you be more accurate. The other is about how to dissent and how to do the same for your peers. Another is about like mental time travel, which we talked a little bit about, but we'll talk more deeply about next week. And... All in all, like the only thing more powerful than learning how to make better decisions yourself is cultivating a team or a peer group where people are focused on accuracy, focused on truth, questioning each other, challenging each other in the right ways, in, in ways that people can be receptive to. So we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that um, next week because there's, there's nothing more powerful than a group of people that is able to do this together. So I hope this was useful to you guys. Um, thank you for for listening and contact us. We we love when you guys reach out. One of the most fulfilling things about this podcast is when someone reaches out with, you know, a well reasoned, um, deep critique, response, uh, feedback, suggestions, requests for for things to cover, and the best place to do that is on Twitter at A-Y-0-N underscore B. So my name is Ion Bhattacharya. That's why A-Y-0-N underscore B. And yeah, next week we'll do Thinking and Bets Part 2. And we're, we're going to be digging a lot more into this topic of like how to think more clearly, how to make better decisions. It's an extremely important topic. If you're a startup founder, if you're someone who's building things, if you're working at a startup, if you're an engineer assessing, you know, the right architecture to implement a feature if you're a product person trying to decide what to build uh if you're in whatever domain right if you're like michael and you're you're trying to figure out the right time format and way to persuade a policymaker on an important issue you're gonna have to make a series of decisions and you're gonna have to make the right decisions Based on the information you have and that topic, there's there are a few topics more important than that. So I'm really excited to dig more into this. And you know, our goal is to read every book we can on this topic and really go deep uh, with you guys. And if you follow along with us, you're gonna build a ton of expertise in this topic. So I'm really excited about it. I hope you guys will join us next week and beyond. So goodbye.